Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for what today represents. Recognizing you as king. Lord, I pray that we would not place our own expectations, our own interpretations of what that should mean. But Lord, I pray that we would fall at your feet and take all of you as who you are, simply as who you are, as the Savior of our souls and the King over our lives. We thank you for your word that reveals to us such truths, that we live in a time where we have God's word readily accessible in our hands, that we can read about who you are and learn about who you are. So Lord, I pray that your spirit would go forth this morning, that we wouldn't just read words in a book, but that they would have power, that they would have a life, that they would do something inside of us, make a change in our hearts and lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1882, uh, author Mark Twain, most famous for his novels, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer and The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, published a novel entitled The Prince and the Pauper. Maybe you've heard of that before. Since then, a few movies have been made depicting that story. This is the one I'm most familiar with right here. Uh, my dad recorded this from the TV onto a VHS tape when I was a kid. For those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, this is the early version of On Demand, the predecessor to On Demand. Anyway, in this story, two boys, one the son of a despised beggar and thief, the other the son of King Henry VIII and heir to the English throne. One, story, uh, one afternoon, the two boys meet and trade clothing one afternoon. And you can imagine the mishaps and lessons learned by the boys who experienced the other's life for a period of a few days. And throughout the story, as he gets into some troublesome predicaments, the prince, who is dressed as a pauper, tries to tell those around him that he really is the prince, who he really is. No one believes him, of course, until the pauper, who is dressed as the prince, confirms it confirms that he's actually telling the truth. Similar to our illustration a couple of weeks ago of the undercover boss, uh, imagine being one of the people who mistreated the prince dressed as a pauper because of who you thought he was, and then finding out who he really was. Imagine that feeling. Oh boy. At the end of the story, the prince who is mistreated as a pauper deals out punishments to those who mistreated him and rewards those who were kind to him. And what I want you to do now is imagine you're a, a random person in that story, an onlooker. You're not, you're not one of the main characters. You're not mentioned at all. You're just, but you're in the story and you're watching what's going on. You found out the prince though still dressed as a pauper, was really the prince before anyone else did. Some, something gave it away. You found out that the prince was really the prince, even though he was dressed as a pauper, before anyone else did. How would you behave and interact with the prince differently? A lot differently than those who still didn't get it, still didn't see him for who he really is. You would behave 
towards and interact with him exactly the way his, his position would demand it, right? You would know that eventually. Eventually, he would take his rightful place as the heir of the throne someday. And you'd be much better off if you treated him as the prince now than if you didn't. A lot of you probably know where I'm going with this. You say, I'm a mile ahead of you. I already know where you're going. Jesus is that prince who, as Paul writes in Philippians, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be desperately clung to, but chose to empty himself, taking the form of a pauper, of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of God. Of men. There was nothing spectacular about how Jesus looked. He didn't wear fashionable clothes. He didn't wear clothes uh, befitting his status as the king of the universe. The news that Paul had brought with him to Thessalonica was the news of who that bondservant dressed in servant's clothes really was when he came to earth the first time. He was really the king. As such, the news was that someday all the world will recognize him for who he really is. And on that day, he will punish those who rejected who he really was and reward those who accepted him with their lives for who he really is. The news that Paul brought to Thessalonica was that he knew who Jesus really was. And to lead the Thessalonians to know and believe that as well. See, for all intents and purposes, Jesus did not look like a king. And he certainly didn't act like a king when he was on earth at his first coming. But some people, through their knowledge of the scriptures and the prompting of the Holy Spirit, realized who he really was. Those people brought that news of who Jesus really is all around the world telling more and more people that news. Today, still in this interim time period, we get the chance to accept the news of who Jesus really is or reject it. But someday, it will be fully revealed as to Jesus' real identity and everyone will be forced to recognize it, either in punishment and destruction or in reward. We talked extensively a couple weeks ago about the day when that full revelation will take place at Jesus' second coming. If you missed that message, it was recorded both in video and audio form and uploaded to our website and podcast platform. So you can go back and check that out and get caught back, get, uh, caught back up with us. At a future time, even more future than Jesus' partial coming at the point of the rapture, Jesus will fully return to earth along with we who were raptured previously, wage war against those who were evil and brought persecution to his people and set up his earthly kingdom for a thousand years. When Jesus returns at his second coming, the Bible says, at the name of Jesus, every knee... Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That will happen. Everyone will recognize Jesus as king someday. 
But to be rewarded with eternal life, we must recognize him as both king and savior now. Not when it's too late. When 2 Thessalonians 1.7, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not know, obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That will be too late. We talked a lot more extensively of that event a couple of weeks ago. But Jesus will be fully revealed as king someday in all his glory and power. Those who rejected Jesus as savior and king will face what we just read in 2 Thessalonians 1.7. Those, those who accepted him as both savior and king were raptured already at this point are returning with Jesus at his second coming. And on that day, Jesus will be glorified in his saints on that day and will be marveled at among all who have believed. And that's what brings us to our passage this morning. First point that we're coming to, one of two points, is the growth. It's to that end, everything that we've been talking about up to this point, it's to that end that Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 1.11. If you brought your Bible with you today, please turn there. It's in the New Testament. If you're having trouble finding it, that's perfectly okay. Look it up in the table of contents. There's no shame in that. I want all of us to see this together at the same time. 2 Thessalonians, towards the end of the first chapter, verse 11. It's to this end. Also, we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. Now, who is Paul addressing here? He's addressing the Thessalonian believers, right? He's addressing the church in Thessalonica. Those about who Paul says, for our testimony to you was believed. These are, this is the church. These are Christians in Thessalonica that Paul is writing to. But when we read what Paul tells them in verse 11, when you read that, we'll read it again. To this end also we pray for you always that our God, that our God will count you worthy of your calling. When you read that, doesn't it seem like there's a possibility that things are still up in the air for the Thessalonian believers? That's why Paul feels like he has to pray for it, that God would count them worthy of their calling. At least in the NASB, it reads that Paul tells them, we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling. Is there a chance that he wouldn't? Is there something that's still up in the air here? How would the Thessalonian believers ever know if they were counted worthy enough for eternal life? And you know, that's the same exact question that's rattling around a lot of people's heads these days. The question, the statement, I hope God counts me worthy enough to enter his kingdom. I really hope that. I really hope I can go to heaven someday. But I'm not really 100% sure. But this is the beauty of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. That has nothing to do with it. You hoping for yourself, hoping that you're good enough to get into heaven has absolutely nothing to do with it. All we have to do is accept Jesus for all of who he is. 
not only as our Savior from the judgment of our sins, but the King over our lives as well. What is proven to that extent is the spiritual fruit that is born in our lives. But here's a good question. Are we solely responsible for this spiritual growth? Are we solely responsible for this spiritual growth? No, we are not. And here's where it gets good. If we look at this phrase, that our God will count you worthy of your calling, it's not an up-in-the-air, never-knowing-for-sure phrase in connection with whether or not we'll make it to heaven. To see this, we need to take a step back and see this phrase within the whole context of the letter, and then we'll be able to get it. Further on, Paul outright tells the Thessalonian believers in this same letter, in the following chapter, he says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. Why? Because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, is there anything vague up in the air or never knowing for sure about that in terms of our faith? No. That's pretty point blank there. Outright obvious. Next question. How do we know if we've been chosen? Well, exactly by what Paul says at the end of this verse. Through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It's very simple. If you believe and accept Jesus exactly for who he is in Scripture and are surrendering yourself daily to the Holy Spirit's transformation of your heart and life, then guess what? You know that you've been chosen. Or else you wouldn't care about that. You know you've been chosen if you've done those things. Why? Because that point blank, in a very real, visible way, displays that you acknowledge him as your king in every way. That's what that means. And as such, Paul's prayer was not that the Thessalonians be counted worthy for their calling or faith. Paul's prayer is that the Thessalonians be counted worthy because of their calling or faith. Now let me explain. As one biblical scholar pointed out, what Paul is praying for is that the Thessalonians would live in accordance to their faith by the transformation of the Holy Spirit, that their walk would back up their talk. See, our salvation and spiritual transformation begins and ends with God. As we read a minute ago, God is the one who chose to save us. Then Jesus, as God, paid for that salvation so we can even have that sanctification. The Holy Spirit, also as God, called us to faith in that salvation, sealed our eternal destinies, and transforms us into one worthy of the faith we were called to. You see how that all works? See, our salvation and, and spiritual transformation begins and ends with God. So really, Paul's prayer is that the Thessalonians surrender more and more of themselves each day to the Holy Spirit's transformation of their hearts and lives. It's that same Holy Spirit transformation of their hearts that Paul could pray next for two things in connection with that transformation. 
The first one in verse 11 is that God would fulfill their every desire for goodness. Read that with me. That God would count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness. That's the first uh, uh, thing here. Say, if one of us, if one of them, if one of the Thessalonians or one of us has a good desire to overcome an addiction or be freed from guilt, be freed from anxiety, be freed from fear, be freed from depression, Paul was praying that those desires would be granted by God. Or if one of them, one of the Thessalonians, or one of us has a good desire to be more generous with what God has given to us, or to be a better example to our kids, or get our finances in order, or have a better attitude about our situation, we must be praying that those good desires become a reality. When you try to overcome these different things in your life, are you trying to do them on your own power, or are you praying for God's power to bring the freedom and bring the victory in those things. And that, of course, is directly tied into the Spirit's transformation. If we surrender those areas to transformation in prayer, they will be accomplished through the power of God. It may take some time, but God will give the victory in those different areas. The second prayer item connected to the Spirit's transformation of our hearts and lives is that God would fulfill every work of faith with power. Read that again with me. And the work of faith with power. The, the first item was more in connection with goals and purposes for our lives. Those things that we're looking at. Those things we want to aspire to in order to reflect Jesus more in our lives. You can see it. You say, that is what I want to aspire to, to reflect Jesus more in my life. No matter what the area is. That's the point of the first prayer. That God would fulfill every desire for goodness. That's the point of the first prayer. The point of the second prayer... is more in connection with the everyday actions and choices we make to get there. The point of the first prayer is seeing what we want to aspire to, to reflect Jesus more. The point of the second prayer is more in connection with the everyday choices we make to get there. See, God is not only interested in the growth of our lives, but He's also invested in each step of the way to get there. He's not just thinking, yeah, that would be nice if you can get to that point. But he's invested in every step of the way that you have to take to get there. So Paul's prayer is for the power of God to influence our daily decisions as we keep our eyes on Jesus and what he wants for our lives. For instance, we won't magically overcome an addiction. We won't magically be freed from worry or be more generous or be better examples or be better financial stewards or have better attitudes about our situations. That's not magically going to happen. And I think we all know that. I think we've all lived life enough to know that. It's in, the, it's in God giving us the power with each way we think about things and each decision we make in those areas that we're finally going to see that victory. 
It's in placing our focus on another blessing that God has given to us. God himself, family members, another good and constructive hobby or activity, or knowing that God has a great purpose for us that will help us to overcome that addiction. It's when you are in the deepest part of that battle and everything is dark and everything is pulling you towards that addiction that you cling to God. You cling to who He is. You cling to that purpose you know He has for you. And every single time we do that, in that decision-making process, we're one step closer to that full victory. It's not going to happen overnight. It's in reminding ourselves of the truth of God, who we are as a child of God, that God is sovereign and in control of everything in this world and our lives, reminding ourselves of these truths every second of every day. In short, reminding ourselves of the truth of God's word that will help free us from worry and anxiety. It's these same reminders Every day, as we get hit in the face with these situations where we're tempted to just give ourselves over to worry and fear and just let it drag us down, it's these same reminders that will help us to have better attitudes about every situation. That God is sovereign. That He is in control of everything in this world and our lives. That He loves us. That He has a plan for growth in our lives. That nothing is needless or unnecessary, that God has a reason for everything in the growth of our lives. It's in seeing that everything and anything we have is actually God's to begin with, and He's only allowing us to be stewards with it, asking God for more opportunities to use those material goods for His mission, and trusting in His provision and sovereignty that will help us become more generous being more open-handed, knowing that it's all God's to begin with, and knowing that He will give us the power over fear and worry. It's that same mindset that will help us get our finances in order. It's in reminding ourselves in every situation that someone is watching us, whether it be a child, a grandchild, a neighbor, a friend, a student, a teacher, a cashier, a wait staffer, a police officer, a boss, or a fellow employee. Somebody is always watching us. They see how we react to different situations. It's keeping that knowledge in our minds, no matter what the circumstance is, that will help us be better examples. Ultimately, it's the power of God in these everyday decisions that will bring us to the point where God wants us to be. And then someday we'll look back on our lives and see how far God's power has brought us in each, every day, seemingly little decision we've made. We think they're little decisions now as we're making them and we're going through them and relying on God's power in those little everyday situations. But as we know, they add up, right? And someday we'll be able to look back on our lives and see how far each of those little decisions with God's power have brought us. Ultimately, as Paul says so clearly here at the end of verse 11, it's the power of God that's going to make any lasting difference. If we try to do any of these things on our own, and if I just try harder, in our own power, 
it will never last. It may last for a little while, but it will never fully last. If it's the power of God by us surrendering these areas to his transformation and power, we will see lasting progress. It may take a while, but we will see marked progress. So we took a look at the growth. The whole point of Paul's prayer in verse 11. And now we're going to take a look at the glory. As these areas of our lives reflect Jesus more and more, then what Paul prays for next falls into place. Verse 12, So that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. As these areas of our lives reflect Jesus more and more, this falls into place. As one biblical scholar pointed out, the Holy Spirit's transformation of each area of our lives is not ultimately for us, although it's a fantastic side effect. It's not just so we can feel good about ourselves. See, look how far I've come. Look how much of a better person I am right now. That's not the point of it. That's a fantastic side effect of it, but that is not the point of it. The Holy Spirit's transformation of each area of our lives is ultimately for whose glory? Not our glory, but for God's glory. That's the ultimate point of God bringing us on this journey in every single decision of our lives. The transformation of our lives now, improving the calling of our faith now, and marveling at Jesus' accomplishments in our lives and the world at his second coming will bring glory to the name of the King. After all, that connects back with how we started these verses. When Jesus returns at his second coming, because remember, we have to see everything in context. When Jesus returns at his second coming, defeats those who came in war against him and his people, and sets up his earthly kingdom, verse 10 says, he will be glorified in his saints on that day. Chapter 1, verse 10. Today is Palm Sunday. When Jesus entered Jerusalem on that day during his first coming, riding on a donkey, the crowds gathered and shouted praises to the king. However, he wasn't the king that they wanted at that point, to do for them what they wanted at that point. Four to five days later, the shouts from another crowd in Jerusalem were different. Four to five days earlier, people were shouting, Hosanna, save now. Four to five days later, after that day, people are now shouting, crucify him, get rid of him. He's not who we want him to be. Just get rid of him. They didn't recognize him as the true king and what he needed to accomplish for humanity at that point. And thank God they weren't successful at making him king at that point because none of us would have any hope. We have the opportunity to recognize him as the true king here and now, both with our faith the surrender of every area of our lives to his kingship, and therefore the way that we live our everyday lives. See, we know who the king really is. So the next question is, does it matter? What's it doing in our lives? Is it, is it making any difference in our lives knowing who the king really is? 
Someday the whole world will recognize Jesus in all his glory as its true king. As Paul says at the end of verse 12, our faith and life growth all begin with God's grace. That's where it starts. Remember I said it all begins and ends with God. It all starts with God's grace. All of this life growth begins with God's compassion and mercy. They all begin with God's love. We can go back with limited scope in our lives now and glorify Jesus for all he's done in and through and with us. But there will be a day when we will fully see Jesus for all of who he is as he's accomplishing God's will on earth as it is in heaven. There will be a day when the destruction of evil begins on this earth and we will glorify our king for finally establishing peace and truth in this world. Let us look forward to that day by partaking in it now. We know it's going to happen. Let's start partaking in all of the power and blessings of that day now, knowing fully who Jesus is as king of our lives. Our reward is not altogether future. We're not just sitting around or kicking the can down the road with our looking down at the ground. Our hope is not altogether future. We have God's power now. We have God's power as king to overcome weakness, to receive peace, joy, and freedom, and experience victory right here and now, giving him the glory for what he accomplishes in our lives now. We don't have to look forward to that day. We can start giving him the glory that is due the name of the king now. We reap the side effect of healing, functionality, and strength while God gets the full glory of it. Since why? Since He is the one accomplishing it in us anyways. Let us surrender every area of our lives to the transformation of His Spirit in the here and now so that we will prove with what spiritual fruit is born in our, in our lives what our calling of faith really is. And both now and fully, when we return with Jesus, we will marvel at all Jesus has done, is doing, and will do in our lives and in this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the power of the words in your word to us. We thank you that these are not just good sayings, but Lord, they are our lives. They are life. When you rose from the dead, you breathed new life into us. Lord, I pray that if there is anybody here who has not accepted you fully as both Savior and King over their lives, that they would do it right now. That they would say, Lord Jesus, I am so sorry. I haven't recognized you as who you fully are as King. I repent of my sinfulness. I repent of my sins. Lord, I need you. Please come into my life and start fixing it, start changing it, start transforming it, because I know you are the true king over my life. And Lord, I pray that if we've done that and we can look back on things in our lives, I pray that you would receive all the glory. And I pray that in the midst of these battles of addiction and depression and anxiety and fear, Lord, I pray that it would be you, your power, who would free us from those things so that we may rejoice in you and marvel at who you are and what you're doing in the here and now. Not just looking forward.
forward to it in the future, but rejoicing and marveling about it here and now. Lord, we thank you for who you are, that you are our good, loving Father. You are our living God. Come to save us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me as we close out our time this morning.